Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. 2 Timothy 2.16 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. It's funny. One who does not need to be ashamed. Sometimes we don't want to even get started with reading the Bible because we're already feeling ashamed. We hear somebody else talk about the Bible and we think, I should know more of the Bible by now. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You've been coming to church, but you don't actually read your Bible and you feel the shame. And, and don't let that keep you from engaging. It doesn't matter where you are right now. The fact is, do your best. Do your best. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You don't have to be an expert in the Bible to read it, but you can become one. You can become a Bible expert just by doing your best to become someone who correctly handles the word of truth. Listen, I've been a pastor. How many years have I been a pastor now? 20-some years? 22 years? I have, at times, incorrectly handled the word of truth. Does that make the word incorrect? No, it makes my handling of it incorrect. I go back and listen to some of my messages from 15 years ago, and I'm like, delete, that will never get out again. Sometimes I was just flat out wrong. Other times, I've changed. I've come to a new realization that maybe the application of that word wasn't right, and sometimes it was right then, but it's not right now. The word didn't change. The application of it actually changed. And so everybody, whether you're a pastor, a Bible teacher, or just starting out for the first time, do your best. Become the expert. You don't have to be the expert right away. It happens when people like get involved in, I know, Bethany, you're endeavoring to do your first triathlon coming up. How intimidating is it at first when you get out there and you realize everybody swims better than me, everybody cycles better than me, everybody runs better than me, and it's like, well, stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Just do the best with what you have. Figure out where your baseline is, where you're starting, and move forward from there. Don't worry. Don't compare your start to everybody else's. Just get better at what you're doing, and before you know it, You've become the expert. Same thing is true when we actually study the Bible. You knew cycling or triathlon was going to come into this message at some point in time, and there you go. Correctly handling the word of truth. What are one of the things I want to address this morning is the Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if we're going to learn how to correctly handle the word of the truth, the word of truth, what do we do with this Old Testament? It's old, right? What do we do with old things? We throw them away, unless you're a pack rat and you hold on to it forever. But why would we keep an Old Testament if there's a new one? Why drive an old car when you can drive a new car? What do we do with the Old Testament? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. So the Bible consists of 66 books, okay? And it is divided into two distinct volumes. That's the way to think about it. Remember we said last week, don't think of the Bible as a book. Think of it as a library with a library of different sections, a history section, a law section, a poetry section, an action section. Well, not only is it a library, but it also has two distinct 
volumes to it, okay? The Old Testament and the New Testament. The first 39 books of the Bible, which we refer to as the Old Testament, is actually what Jews would refer to as the Hebrew Bible. It's probably a better phraseology for it to call it a Hebrew Bible rather than an Old Testament because when Jesus walked the earth, that was the Bible. It wasn't the Old Testament. It was the Testament. And so it's, it's better described as the Hebrew Bible. Now, how do we look at the Hebrew Bible? We need to understand that the Hebrew Bible is the agreement God made with His people, Israel. Okay? It's an agreement because testament, the word testament actually means agreement. It's God's agreement with His people, Israel. It wasn't written to everybody else. It was specifically for the nation of Israel. It shows how He relates to them and how they're supposed to relate to Him. It's important to understand that, okay? It doesn't mean it's not relevant to us, but we have to read the Old Testament as God's agreement with the nation of Israel. Anybody ever been to the Bible Museum in D.C.? Have you guys been to that yet? Well, I remember when Romy and I first went, when it first opened up, and there's a whole floor of it this divided into two sections. And I thought, oh, isn't this interesting? You turn left, and it's all of the Old Testament. You turn right, and it's all of the New Testament. And the line for the Old Testament was around the building, like all the way around it, and nobody was in the New Testament side. And I was like, this is strange. I love the Old Testament, but what's going on here? And then it struck me. Ah, Christians will go to both sides, but it was all Jews that were lined up going into the Old Testament. I thought, oh, I get it. You know, that's, that's why this line is so long and that line isn't all that long. But I thought, what a, what a great example. When you're approaching the Bible, I'm always picturing these two lines. And I'm picturing somebody decided this is the only line that I'm going to be in. And that's Jews who have not yet acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. And so the New Testament has no context for them. It's only the Old Testament. But yet I've seen Christians that just go to the New Testament and go, that has no reference for us whatsoever, and so I'm only going in the New Testament line. Both of those are unbalanced and wrong. We need to go to both sides. Now, I'm going to go to the short line first. <laughs> so if you're going to start somewhere, start with the New Testament. But I, rem- I just realized that that's what people do. They sit in these camps of thinking, I'm going to pick one or the other. God's intention for us was to understand and have a relationship with the whole Bible. So there's also the 27 books of the New Testament. So if the Old Testament is God's agreement with His people, the nation of Israel, the New Testament is God's agreement with all people through Jesus. That's the difference between the two. One is for Israel. One is for all people through Jesus. And so when you read the Old Testament... It doesn't mean if I'm not Jewish, it's not for me. Let me give you a little, I'm I'm just going to throw some tips out there of of how to read your Bible that aren't necessarily big points. Characters in the Bible, people that are in the Bible, they're not characters, they're people, right? How do you read people in the Bible? Like when I read the story of David, or I read the story of Adam, or if I read the story of Abraham, how am I supposed to read that? Am I supposed to inject myself into the story? Maybe, but not necessarily. The idea of reading about these different individuals in the Bible, understand that the Bible never covers up people's sin. 
It does not give you the Instagram story of their life. It reveals the good, the bad, and the ugly. So when you read about people in the Bible, you're to read them almost like a mirror that reflects back to you, do I have principles in my heart that these people exhibited in their hearts? And if I do, how did it work out for them? So Adam, Adam began to question what God said. Actually, Eve did it first. Eve began to question what God said. How did that end up for Eve? When I look at Eve's life, do I ever question what God has said to me? And my life will probably end up like Eve's if I made the decisions that Eve made. So you read these people in the Bible and use it like a mirror to reflect back to you the attitudes and perceptions and how you approach God. Okay, So when we read the Old Testament, even though it was a volume that was not written to us, it was written to the Jewish people, it doesn't mean it has no relevance to us whatsoever. Use the Old Testament as a mirror into your own life and think not just what can I get out of it, but are there anything in my... So the Old Testament is full of times when the Jewish nation disobeyed God and received punishment for it. If you're anti-Semitic, you'll go, well, that's because Jewish people always disobey God. That's an anti-Semitic thing. The Christian way to look at it is to go, have I ever disobeyed God? Have I ever approached God the way they did? Because I don't want to end up like that. I want to make sure I learn the lessons of the previous generation by using it like a mirror. Does that help anybody? All right. So if I'm not Jewish, why should I read the Old Testament? Well, that's one reason why. is because it can reflect back to you some of the issues in your own heart. But why should I even read it? If it's written to them, why would I read it? Well, some of the first century church actually thought the same way. As early as the first century, they wanted to throw out the whole Old Testament. There's a, a theologian, he's actually a Gnostic, his name is Marcion, and that was his whole idea was that we're going to throw out the Old Testament and only take about two-thirds of the New Testament, and that's what we're going to believe. And he was very, very influential in the early church. In fact, some of the um, things that were written in the Bible were dealing with false teachers that were trying to do that. They were trying to pick and choose what books of the Bible they wanted to use instead of which ones God had actually put his anointing on. So it's not a new concept, but some people today want to throw out the Old Testament because they read the book of Leviticus like we did last week, and they're like, I ain't doing that. So let's just throw the whole thing out. If the Bible says you can't eat pork, I don't want to have anything to do with that part of the Bible. And so we're going to throw the whole thing out. But you'd be doing a mistake in doing that. Do you know the number of reason why we don't throw out the Old Testament? It's because Jesus validated all of it. If he didn't throw it out, I don't think I'm going to throw it out. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Have a look down at the floor. Just have a look at the floor. That's earth. Is it there? Then it has not yet disappeared. So until the earth disappears, until you're like floating, oh then the Old Testament's still valid. Therefore, anyone who sets aside 
one of the least of these commands. So not only can we not set the whole thing aside, but we can't pick and choose either. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaching these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But what do we do about some of the difficult verses in the Old Testament? Well, we certainly don't just throw them out and decide we're not going to do them. But we have to interpret them correctly. Do you know that Jesus' biggest criticism of the Pharisees? Remember how you read through the New Testament and he's like, woe to you Pharisees, the seven woes, and he's always criticizing them? The ultimate criticism he had of them, because the Pharisees thought they were doing what was right. They were endeavoring to, to honor God and to please God, and they loved him. But he's saying, you have misinterpreted Torah. You've taken the Old Testament, and you've misinterpreted and misapplied it. And yet they were supposed to be the experts. So he didn't throw it away. He just said, you've misinterpreted it. There's a difference between that. It's not that it's not relevant for today. you just got to make sure you interpret it correctly. That's why we want to do our best to try to do that. Make sense? But the Old Testament... It lays the foundation for the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. It lays the foundation. So if you just start with the arrival of Jesus, you'll miss the entire foundation that his arrival is built upon. So the Bible contains two major ways that God provided for humans to relate to him, the old and the new. And you need to, you can't fully understand the new way that God provides for humans to relate to Him unless you first understood the old way. It'll give you a greater depth of appreciation for what we have today. So here's Bible goal reading, Bible reading goal number three. You ready? Remember that the purpose of the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament, is to point to Jesus. It's easy to think, well, the New Testament points to Jesus. It tells His story and and the beginnings of the church, but the old does as well too. So if you're to get anything out of this whole thing, it's that the purpose of the whole Bible is to point to Jesus. So now that we already know that there's a New Testament, they didn't know it when Jesus was here. He was the New Testament. We know that we can read the Old Testament already having our New Testament, and the right way to interpret the Old Testament is to realize that its purpose was to point to Jesus. If you get that, you'll get the rest of it right. I had a quick diagram here of just kind of how the Bible's divided. We don't need to go into it. We'll show it, but I don't have to go into any depth. So kind of the Old Testament division. So Jews would divide the Old Testament into what they called the law, the prophets, and the writings uh, was kind of their three definitions of it. The law was the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Pena mean five, and uh, that was the first five books. So we had the law. Do we have that graphic up there? I didn't send that one. The Old Testament divisions is the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. We have the history books, Joshua through Esther. We have the poetry books of Job through Song of Songs. We have major prophets, and then we have minor prophets. Minor doesn't mean they're less important. It just means they're smaller books, and the influence of those prophets was over a smaller geographic area. But that's kind of how we see it divided. And so, again, 
if you're in that volume, you've got to understand which section you're actually reading. Is this a history section? Is this a law section? Is this a poetry section? And if you're reading poetry as if it was law, you're going to get yourself in trouble. So read it as poetry. There is some imagery that are used in these poetic books that aren't meant to be interpreted literally. They are poetic. Make sense? The New Testament is divided into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a history book. Do you know the Bible... The New Testament has a history book. It's called the book of Acts. It's a history book. You have Paul's letters to the churches. Then you have what's called the general letters, which are not written by Paul, and they're not written to a specific church, but to all of the church in general. And then you have an apocalyptic book. What a great word. Pop, poco, I can't say it. Apocalyptic. That just means end times, and that deals with the book of Revelation. So there are divisions between that, Okay. So how do we read the Old Testament? Why do we read the Old Testament? Because Jesus did. Jesus validated all of the Old Testament. How do we read it? We read it understanding that the Old Testament's purpose is to point to Jesus. And the, the, the different people in those stories, the way we are to read and interpret them is to use them as a mirror to look back on ourselves and our own heart and see if there's anything that was in them that also exists in us, good or bad. So looking at people's hearts... What did God say about them? How did, it, how did it work out for them? How did it respond? Even all the kings. You see these lists of kings, and God says they either did evil in their eyes like their father, or they followed after my servant David. It's very interesting because the evil kings said they followed after the father that was just before them, but most of the good kings, it all went all the way back to David, regardless of who their natural father was. There's something to see there. There's something to take note to go, well, then I want to learn what was in David's heart. David must have lived a sin-free life. Far from it. But yet God called him a man after his own heart. Well, he's a man after his own heart because he's a warrior king. Maybe. Or maybe it's just that when he was confronted with this sin, he quickly confessed and repented. Maybe that's the key to him being a man after his own heart. Who knows? I'm not going to deal with David today, but that's how you read about people in the Bible. Next principle I want to help you with this morning. When we read the Bible, make sure that you don't cherry pick verses. There's one author that I've been digging into a little bit, and he phrases this concept differently. He says, never read a Bible verse. I thought that was a bit strong, but it's provocative. I like it. Don't cherry-pick verses. What does it mean to cherry-pick a verse? You ever go to the grocery store and you're looking to buy three apples? What do you do? Do you grab the first three apples you find? Of course not. You turn over every single apple. I do. You turn over every single apple in that bunch to find the perfect apple without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, and you pick those apples and you put them in your bag, and you take them home carefully, and you put them in your refrigerator where they rot because you forgot to eat them, so it doesn't matter how good it was when you picked it out. And then you walk into Whole Foods when they first came, and you go, they are all perfect apples. How do they do this? What is the gift? Oh, they're $7 apples. That's why they're all perfect. I got it now. Whole paycheck. I understand. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Do you know that's actually a problem in the American food system is we throw out so much food because we don't pick something that's a little bit warped. 
Not y'all. Y'all do farmer's markets or grow your own food. I know that. You got your own chickens. I get it. But you can't read your Bible that way. Ooh, let me find just the right verse. Not just the right verse that will give me the wisdom of God, but just the right verse that will tell me what it is that I actually want to hear. I need God to justify to me my behavior towards my neighbor whose dog attacked me in my run yesterday at mile 8 when I was too tired to run away, and the dog came after me viciously. Lord, can you give me that particular scripture that makes it okay to yell at my neighbor because their dog needs to go to dog heaven if he ever does that again? Would you, would you show me? Sorry, Joyce. Would you please show me something that justifies my anger towards that person? That's called cherry-picking a verse. I need the whole wisdom of the counsel of God from His Word. I don't want to cherry-pick. Remember, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You want to be ashamed? Just pick a verse and focus on the verse only. Truth is, I think the cherry-picking of Bible verses has been used since the Bible was first written for all kinds of evil. It justifies racism. It justifies violence. It justifies jealousy. You can take anything out of context and make it say whatever it is that you want it to say. But it's wrong. The Bible is none of those things. Joshua writes in Joshua 1.8, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Catch this word, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Meditate on it. What does that mean? It means you've got to read it, and then you've got to read it again. And then read it again. And then read it again. What's two plus two? Anybody want to shout that one out? was like three people. Two plus two is, what about four times four? What's four times four? Well done. What's the square root of 375? You see, some things in the Bible, they're like the simple math you learned in first grade. Ten commandments, don't kill anybody. Got it. But some things are more like square roots. And calculus. It takes a little bit of knowledge. But it's built. Like you didn't learn your arithmetic in first grade and go, I'm good. I don't need to know any more math. Much as I wanted to. You kept going. But it's built on the foundation of that. And these things you, you keep learning as you go. Our study of the Bible is the same way. Don't stop at the Ten Commandments. But realize that some things require a little more study, a little more meditation, a little more guidance of the Holy Spirit because they're calculus. Why does God put calculus in the Bible? Come on. Can't everything be that simple? Well, the Ten Commandments might be arithmetic, but boy, you start getting into divorce and remarriage, that's calculus. Why does God do that? You see, the Bible, it just doesn't want to give up all of its secrets on one reading. 
Sometimes it requires several readings and study. There's a scripture that I sent to you, but I didn't put it in my own notes. That was awesome. That was a great idea. Oh, here it is. Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. God wants you to find these things. We're going to talk about that probably next week. But sometimes things require us to meditate and to think about it and to read it and to read it again. Not only we went meant to keep reading and studying it, but the Bible is actually communal. Do you know what that means? It means we're not just supposed to do it alone in our own room in a closet somewhere. Prayer is, but prayer is also communal. But Bible study is meant to be communal. It's meant for you to read it and talk about it with somebody else. Can you help me understand this? What do you think about this verse? I've been reading here about this. What have you been reading? It was meant to be communal. It was given to a community. It wasn't given just to individuals to make it whatever it is you want it to say and apply it however you want. It's meant to be talked about in a communal setting. It's not just meant to be preached from the front. It's meant to be communal. So the way that you understand, listen, my kids... Liam took calculus. I homeschooled him my senior year. How many of you know I wasn't, I know everything about calculus. Here we go. I'm like, did anybody else here know anything about calculus? Because I am lost. Like I was good up to algebra one, algebra two, maybe, but calculus, I'm lost. It was communal. I had to go find out from other people how to do this. Same is true with the Bible. It's meant to be talked about. Why don't we do that? Because we feel like if I ask a question, I'm going to sound like I'm stupid. There are no stupid questions except the one you never ask, right? It's meant to be communal. Bible reading goal number four. You ready for this? Keep the Bible in context. What does that mean? This is all part of not cherry-picking verses. What I mean by cherry-picking a verse is just taking a verse out of its context to applying it to whatever your particular situation is. So keeping it in context means you're asking who wrote it, who did he write to, when did he write it, was he addressing a particular issue or speaking generally? These are all great questions to ask yourself when keeping in context. But here's what I mean in context. You never take a verse just in isolation. You always have to consider a verse, first of all, in relationship to the paragraph that the verse is actually written in. These are books. They're letters. They're not just, other than the book of Proverbs, that's probably the one ex ex exception here, they're not just random sayings thrown at you. But most of the Bible verses that people memorize, they come in the context of an actual paragraph. That's how we write. We write in paragraphs. And so if you want to understand the verse, look at it first in context to the paragraph. And then once you've done that, look at it in the context of the whole chapter. Then look at it in context of the whole book. Then look at it in the context of everything that author has also written. Then look at it in context of the whole Bible. That's context. It's not, it's not rocket science. So if I see a verse that's difficult to interpret, I'm not flipping over to a Leviticus book 
or, or Exodus and figure out whatever. I'm looking at it just in context of the chapter. Very often you'll find what a verse means by looking at it just within its own paragraph. In fact, I would encourage you maybe just to ignore chapters and verses altogether. You know, those weren't part of the Bible, right? Like chapters and verses were added later by editors just to help you find out where things were, but that wasn't part of the structure of the original books. So you could be fine. I'm not saying you have to, but you could just ignore chapters and verses altogether and just read it as a book or a, a bunch of individual books. Make sense? Okay. Am I losing anybody? Stay with me. This will help. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I'm going to give you an example of this. And we may end here. We'll see. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. How many of you heard this verse? I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Pretty common verse. How many of you heard the shortened version of this that I hear from all kinds of people? I can do all things. That's what I hear. I can do all. I know people have it tattooed all over their bodies. They don't know Jesus, but they got tattooed on my body. I can do all things. God told me I can do all things. Well, walk through that wall, buddy. See how that works out for you. What's the context? Well, first of all, quote the whole verse, I can do all things through him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Who wrote this? Paul wrote this. Who did he write it to? He wrote it to a church in Philippi that was going through some difficult circumstances because they're being persecuted by the Romans. Okay, that's good context. What about the rest of the paragraph? Well, the rest of the paragraph says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. So what is the context when we look at the paragraph? I can do all things because I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. So in other words, I can do all these things in Christ because I have learned to be content. You see, if you don't understand the context of what he's talking about, you'll just say, I can do all things. And it can mean whatever you want it to mean. So not only do you keep it in context of the whole paragraph, I'm just using this as an example. But I would also pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is highlighting to you as you read. So as we just read that on the screen, was there anything about that that just, what do I mean by the Holy Spirit highlighted? It means it caught your attention. There's something about that scripture that just made you go, oh, wait a minute. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit going, I want you to pay attention to something. Because although there is a context of this, and there's a general principle, there's something specific that I also want to teach to you. Remember how I said God gives us two, keep that scripture up there. Remember how I said God gives us two things to help guide us in our discipleship process? Is the Holy Spirit within and His Word, the Bible? That means that as you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit can highlight things to you. Some people read the Bible only looking for the highlights. That's a mistake. 
Because a highlight still has to be in context to the rest of the letter. But if you understand the context and then the Holy Spirit's drawing your attention to something, pay attention to what He's highlighting. So when I read this, it doesn't have to be your highlight. I read this and said, wait a minute, he learned a secret. A secret. I want to know the secret. He doesn't say what the secret is. He just goes, I have learned the secret of being content. If there is a secret I would want to know, it's how to be content with less. I want to know that. And so Paul learned a secret. So now the Holy Spirit is highlighting this to me, and I'm paying attention to it. I'll underline it in my Bible. I'll write it down. But I now want to find out what's the secret Paul learned. And so what do I do? I turn to Genesis. No, I don't do that. I'm just making sure you understood the first principle. How do I find out the secret that Paul learned? What has he already written about? Look at the rest of the letter. In this letter, in chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Oh, he learned how to rejoice. He says in chapter 3, verse 8, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing knowledge, or because of the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he says in chapter 2, verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Speaking of humility. So if I want to learn the secret of being content, I just have to look at what he already said. Somewhere in there, rejoicing is part of the secret. Somewhere in there, learning to have humility like Christ has is part of the secret of being content and of knowing Him, having a relationship with Him. You see what I'm doing? I'm not flipping through all these different sections of the Bible. All I have to do is read what He already wrote about to understand what that secret is. That's how you keep the Bible in context. Everybody say context. Everybody say, I hate it when the preacher tells me to say something. Everybody say, at least he didn't make me turn to my neighbor to say it. Let me give you one more, and then we'll finish today. If there was any book of the Bible I think we need to learn how to keep in context, it's the book of Job. How many of you endeavored to read the book of Job, and you're like, I don't know what this is about. God's either the cruelest person who ever lived. I don't get it. How do we read it in context? Well, here's what Job consists of. Job consists of this cosmic competition between God and Satan where God brags to Satan about Job. I remember when I first read the book of Job, that's the thing that highlighted me to me is God goes, look at my servant Job. Like God is bragging to the devil about Job. That's God's heart towards Job. What if you overheard God saying, look at my boy Sam, and he's saying it to the devil. This guy's awesome. I think that'd be pretty cool. Anyway, nothing to do with the message. I just thought it's pretty cool. But you have this thing going on where the devil challenges God to say the only reason he serves you and loves you is because you've blessed him. And so as a result, Satan trying to prove his point 
takes away everything that, that Job has except for his health. And still Job loves God. But then Satan comes back again and he says, well, the only reason is because you haven't let me harm him personally. And so the devil goes and afflicts him with all these terrible sores. Job loses all of his wealth, all of his kids, loses his own health. That's a bad day, all within probably the same day. And the rest of the book of Job is four of Job's friends that had all the right intentions that come alongside him trying to put meaning to what just happened. And then the end of the book of the Job is you hear God's response. So how do we keep this in context? If you want to pick individual Bible verses and use them out of context, people have done this. They've gone and looked at the advice of Job's four friends and pulled that advice and saying, this is what God says. But Job's friends gave him terrible advice. They tried to explain why this was happening to Job, and they were all wrong. But if you take some of the advice of Job's friends and say, well, God says this in the Bible, God didn't say that. Job's friends said that. The Bible just recorded what Job's friends said. But I know people that have taken some of this advice and go, well, the Bible says this. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible recorded someone else who said that to use as an example of what not to say when people are going through difficult times. How do we interpret the book of Job? You read the whole book. Job 1.8 says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Listen to this. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. What did God say about Job? He is blameless and upright. What does it matter what anybody else had to say if that's what God said? Okay? But do you know what Job's friends did? They came to him with all these explanations of why God did this. And it started out pretty nice. They were well-intentioned people. But after a while, their advice became biting, accusing Job of wrongdoing, accusing, accusing his dead sons of wrongdoing. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So what was God's response? Well, look at Job 42. 42 chapters later, verse 7 and 8. At the Lord, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You see, I've seen people cherry-pick verses, and they take some of the things the friend said and go, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. Look at the beginning. Job was holy and blameless, and look at the end. You friends have spoken wrongly. So the way that we read Job is it's an example 
of how man, even with the best intentions, when they try to explain the purposes of God without actually knowing the nature and character of God, they get it wrong. And not only do they get it wrong, but they go from slight inconsistencies with the nature of God to becoming biting and critical. See, Job's friends went, first they suggested, Job, maybe there's some sin you don't know about. Let's try that. Then they start blaming his children for sinning, his dead children. At the end of it, they are angrily accusing Job of outright sin and even blasphemy. That's what happens when we take things out of context. They try to help them, but their advice actually becomes condemnation. Human explanations for unexplained things, even if well-intentioned, will always lead to condemnation and blame. Some things we may never understand, and that's okay. That's how you read Job. Make sure that when you're giving advice to friends, it's not just worldly wisdom with a little Bible sprinkled in. Why not find out what God has to say about it? Listen, I don't know why you're dealing with cancer. I don't know why your wife died. I don't know why all these things happen. I don't know why. But I do know that God's good. I do know that He loves you. And I will resist the temptation to explain why bad things happen when God has not revealed those things to me. I'm okay with not knowing. In the natural, that's hard. But it's less important that I know the why than I know the who. I know that He loves you. I know that He's with you. And I know that He's good. That sounds so simplistic. But it's all I have. And I can be honest, it's all you need. So let's stand on that together. And we'll believe Him for the miracle we're looking for. Whether it happens or we, it doesn't. He's still good. He's still with you. And He still loves you. I've had to learn to do that as a pastor. Because when I walk into a room, everybody expects me to have all the answers. And I don't. Sometimes my best counsel is just, I don't know. But I know that He's good. I know that He loves you. And I know that He's with you. Can we pray? Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. It's a love letter to us, but it's also full of so much wisdom. Some of it's really easy to get right away, and some of it really has to be dug out and gone over and chewed over and meditated over and talked about with others and to be worked out as a process in us. But I thank you that you're in that process. And whether it's something that's difficult to understand or something we get right away, I thank you, Lord, that this is a lifelong process for us of growing more in love with you, that we are, our affection for you is growing more each day. So I pray over your church this morning, God, as we continue to dig into your word that you give us the patience, the assurance of your presence with us, and the patience to dig out the things that need digging out, 
And sometimes being okay with not knowing for now. It's okay not to know. And that we resist the urge to too quickly apply things that aren't ready for application yet. In Jesus' name, amen. On that last thing, can I just encourage you? I think one of the mistakes that we make as evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, whatever box we fit into, we actually try to apply things too quickly. We want to find that verse for this situation and apply it right away. And I, I applaud the desire to apply things, but some things don't need to be applied yet. It's still got to be meditated on a little bit. Does that make sense? So don't be in a rush to apply something that you don't yet understand. Trust them in the process. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.